Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Peace Production, a podcast by the Organization for World Peace where we look at the biggest issues currently facing human security. I'm your host, Matt Adamson. On today's episode, Cameroon and the ongoing conflict which has come to be termed the Anglophone Crisis. Joining me to take a look at this is social media correspondent Pechilano Ali. Hello, Pechilano. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Can you please explain to us what's been going on between the French-speaking and English-speaking regions over the last few years, and who are the key actors in all this? So I'm going to start by, you know, adjusting that statement a little bit. So actually what's going on in Cameroon, it's not between uh, the French-speaking and the English-speaking part of Cameroon. It's between the English-speaking regions of Cameroon and the French-majority government of Cameroon. Since 2016, there's been an ongoing crisis and it turned into an armed conflict. It started with uh, teachers and lawyers protesting of what they called assimilation of the English subsystem, the Anglophone subsystem, where they were having uh, French judges in Anglophone courts who don't know anything about the common law, but uh, the civil law. So they were you know, in these courts and they were sending, sending the government was sending French speaking teachers to English schools. So the teachers and lawyers started protesting and say, hey, this has been marginalization, the kind of marginalization of the Anglophone regions and the Anglophone subsystem uh, that has been going on since the 1960s, since uh, the two English speaking regions gained independence and decided to join of the French part of the country. So when these lawyers and teachers started, the government responded with some sort of retaliation, you know, opening fire with live bullets on uh, protesters in the streets, imprisoning people, locking up journalists, and essentially suppressing free speech expression. There was no way to talk about these issues. And many people who went to jail today, some of them have been released and political prisoners, some of them are still there. Uh, but essentially, this is what has been going on in Cameroon. Late 2017, it turned into a full-blown armed conflict when the government was not heeding to the demands of the protesters in the English-speaking part of the country because essentially what they were asking for, we need a fair share of the national cake. Roads were bad, schools were down, the health system in the Anglophone regions uh, was down. Nothing was practically functioning. So they said, well, since we're not getting anything from the government and what we, uh, what the government can do best is retaliate in this way, we're taking up arms. So uh, people took up arms in what has been today called Ambazonia. They started asking for independence, uh, wanting to secede from the French speaking part of the country. So since late 2017, it's been a conflict, a full-blown armed conflict that has displaced more than 500,000 people, most of them living as refugees in Nigeria, some of them as internal displaced, uh, internally displaced people in other parts uh, of the country. That's right, and the latest estimates from the UN indicate that there may be as many as 3 million people in need of humanitarian aid in Cameroon at the moment as a result of this conflict. Um, Pichelana, would you be able to go into a bit more of the origins of the conflict and how 
it may be a hangover of Cameroon's colonial past. So as history has it, and, and, I'm, and I'm just going to say as history has it, because I didn't write history, I wasn't there when this was happening, but according to what we read uh, in history, comparatively, the issue, of, the issue between Anglophone regions and the government started right in the 1960s. And the three key parties must be talked about here, the United Nations, France, and Britain. France colonized the French part of the country that makes up about 70 to 80% of the country. And Britain colonized uh, the English part of the country that makes up 20 to 30% of the country. So in, in 1960, at the independence of the two English speaking regions, the United Nations gave the English speaking regions the option to be independent by joining Nigeria or to be independent by joining uh, by reuniting with the French part of the country. And uh, as history has it, the two English-speaking regions said, yes, we're going to be independent by reuniting with uh, the French part of the country. Now, that form of independence has been questioned today. It is not for me to decide whether it was wrong or it was right. But if I were to say, I would say it was a limiting choice because in the 1960s when African countries were gaining independence from the colonizers to become uh, full-blown states in the case of the Anglophone regions that was administered as part of Nigeria by the Britain, the options that the United Nations that was a key organization at that time facilitating independence of African countries gave these English-speaking regions the option to be part of Nigeria or to be part of the French of French Cameroon. So it was a limiting choice. So right after this, you know, issues of marginalization of the English uh, system that the, the the Anglophone regions inherited from the Brit from Britain, you know, started coming up on how there was no equality in the country. Anglophones were marginalized. Projects were never going to, you know. Uh, the English part of the country. It continued like that for years and years and years. And for as long as I can remember and for as long as I've been alive and conscious about what has been called the Anglophone problem in Cameroon, there's always been this question of Anglophones as seen in the country as second-class citizens. They're not seen as equal as, as Francophones. For example, in uh, schools where you have to write, in government schools where you have to write an entrance exam to enter there, majority of the people who get in are francophones. In the military, majority are francophones. In the healthcare sector, majority are francophones. In the government, less than 10% are anglophone. Now you would say anglophones make up a smaller part of the country, smaller part of the population of the country, but they also, uh, the Anglophone, Anglophone regions also make up uh, almost more than half of the GDP of the country. So the root cause of this full-blown conflict in Cameroon right now is the grievance of what protesters and now cessationists and separatists have called marginalization. Fundamentally, treating Anglophone Cameroonians in a way that makes them feel that they are not part of the country, in a way that they believe they are not benefiting from 
the national cake. This is what has sparked this problem. So these grievances have really come clear throughout the last um, few years. How has the government sought to address these grievances to date? What measures have been taken so far? It's hard to say what the government has done because for as long as I can remember, and the government has always been in denial of the existence of such a problem in Cameroon. Until recently, when it became a full-blown armed conflict, the government was never accepting that there was even such a thing in Cameroon as marginalization or the Anglophone problem, Anglophone crisis ever existed. But in 2016, when this problem was reignited, when this crisis was reignited by lawyers and teachers in the English-speaking regions of the country, the government continuously was in denial of the existence of the problem and responded to protesters by arresting them, by opening fire live bullets on uh, unarmed civilians and imprisoning people, suppressing free expression. Essentially, it was like, you can't have this conversation in Cameroon. On national and international media, they would camouflage and say, well, we are open to having this conversation. We want to dialogue. But essentially, people who were making decisions or who are making decisions or who make decisions in the government are always have always been in denial of the existence of the problem. Now, this is not to say that the government has not taken steps to deal with the problem. The question is, are these steps adequately addressing the problem. Addressing the problems mean addressing the root cause of the problems. I these agree, are, yeah. And one of such steps have been uh, the recently held national major, whatever they called it, major national dialogue, which uh, under pressure from international community, uh, the government decided to organize a major national dialogue that's where they officially agreed that or accepted that it was actually a problem going on in the country. Even when uh, millions of people had been displaced and there were in need of humanitarian aid, the government was still denying that there was no such problem in, uh, in the country. Uh, the government also started something, I think it was like two years ago, the government started something, say the Bilingualism Commission uh, which was supposedly to implement bilingualism in the country, but <laughs> it was dead before it even started because we've not seen anything that they've done. It was bound to fail because there was no way that, you know, such a commission was ever going to work because the major cause of the problem in Cameroon is not language or as the international community has often interpreted it. It's not a language fight. It's essentially a fight to preserve a culture that the Anglophone regions inherited. The Anglophone regions lived and inherited from their former colonizers. Cameroon is essentially bicultural and there's no way that we can deny that. And when I say bicultural, it, in terms of you know the legacies of colonialism. So this major national dialogue um, that you touched on, the, uh, there's been quite a lot of criticism around that this was forward from the start and that the government set the agenda and that it was really a conversation between elites that did not capture the voices of those in the Anglophone regions that have called for um, independence. On that question, what do you see as the key positive 
outcomes of this national dialogue and what do you see as its key weaknesses beyond the fact that there might not have been adequate representation for those who, who needed to hear grievances? I'm going to be very wary to say that there's any positive from the major national dialogue. One, the government set the agenda. And as you touched there, there was an issue of representation. As I know, most of the people who made the decisions or whatever the decisions were during the major national dialogue were elites who were mostly not grassroots people who were affected by these. And a few grassroots people who were there, there were questions of whether they were actually representatives of communities that were affected or people that the government bribed to push the government agenda. But if I were to pick out any positive thing from the major national dialogue, it would be the fact that the government recognized that there's actually a problem. They accepted that there is a problem and they want to solve the problem. But the will, the positive will to solve the problem is what was missing. I wouldn't say that there has been anything positive so far. I know that resolutions from the major national dialogue ended in the or proposals for a special status, a special administrative status for the two English-speaking regions. But we're not sure what that is because what is going to make up this special status and how it's going to operate has not been made known yet. Parliament closed a couple of weeks ago. It's been reconvened for an extraordinary session and the president has ordered that this special status be discussed. So you and I and the international community are still waiting to see exactly what comes out of parliaments or discussions about this special status and what it's going to mean for the two English-speaking regions of the country about their future moving forward. So it's it's quite poignant that you touch on that we don't really know where this is going to go. I mean, they established eight commissions through the process to address certain issues. But what have you seen so far as far as the international reaction to the dialogue in Cameroon that we're seeing? I would say it's quite unfortunate to say this because... You know, it's quite unfortunate that the international community has largely ignored what is going on in Cameroon. I would say largely ignored what is going on. I'm saying largely ignored what is going on in Cameroon because you don't see this in the news, for example, because it's Cameroon. It's a small country in Central Africa uh, and no one cares. An organization that is supposed to get the international community involved and talking about this is the United Nations. But so far, as I can put it, the United Nations has been, I would say, in my opinion, playing politics with this. United Nations, France and Britain coming out to say we strongly condemn this or we are concerned about what is going on in Cameroon or doesn't make any sense to me. Those are not actions. When you say we are strongly concerned or we are deeply concerned or uh, we strongly condemn what is going on or what the separatists are doing or what military forces and to think that there's been so much human rights abuses in this whole situation and the international community has been quiet about it i know that the united states has met some sanctions against cameroon and stuff like that but i think much more could be done i don't know what exactly would be done maybe first acknowledging that the problem is not a language fight because there's some framing that I've often seen in international media outlets. And I use media outlets here because 
these are tools that inspire what becomes policy because what the media reports, that's what the international community uses to enact whatever international policy that is going to be used to address the situation in Cameroon. So the bottom line is the international community often gets it wrong, often plays what we would know as international politics and ignoring what is going on in Cameroon, except for the fact that the United Nations, through its numerous agencies, is just trying to raise funds for humanitarian purposes to address, you know, the humanitarian crisis that has resulted, that the whole situation in Cameroon has resulted in. Yeah, I agree with you on that point because um, it really has been quiet on an international perspective um, in regards to what we're seeing in Cameroon. In terms of possible ways forward from here, what do you see? In, in my opinion, that the government must be ready to include some trusted Anglophone leaders in their discussions and not just individuals deemed to be cooperative with the government. Um, what sort of concessions do you think the government could make and, and what would success look like here? I mean, what, what, what does good look like beyond there being a peaceful situation in Cameroon? I think the least the government can do is listen. When this whole issue started, protesters were demanding for a return to federalism. If the government could take a shot and go back to the federal system of government where regions were independent, where regions had the power to administer, to manage their resources. That's the beginning of peace, I would say, returning to the country. But for some reason, and I don't know why, the government does not want to entertain such thought. Playing devil's advocate here, if you were the Francophone government, it would be quite damaging for you if you were to make those concessions given that a lot of your GDP comes from these Anglophone regions. But if the dialogue process is to succeed, I mean, the government must, in my opinion, find some way of earning the trust of the Anglophones. So there so, must so be some sort of concessions there, you think, would think. Yeah, much of the GDP of the country comes from the English-speaking regions of the country. But it doesn't mean that going back to federalism, there's not going to be a federal government. While there are state government, original government, there's a federal government that still has some power of controlling what resources go where. It's like in America, it's like in Nigeria, where there's a federal government. States are States have the power to run the affairs, but there is a federal government that deals with federal issues. I honestly cannot explain why the Cameroon government at this point does not want to even concede that the federal, the, uh, the federal system of government is something that worked in Cameroon. And one question that has never been answered is why was the federal system of government dissolved? Because there was an intention to assimilate the English-speaking part of the country into the French system and the French part of the country. And that is essentially what people have been fighting against so that fight against that assimilation there i mean there's an ongoing argument within the anglophone regions of cameroon and i've seen a survey that um foreignpolicy.com um, commissioned in yaounde around what the people's views were on how cameroon should approach this issue and about 40 percent of those surveyed wanted independence and about 
an equal number um, were in favor of a move back to federalism. What do you have to say to those that are really keen to push for independence for the region? What do you think they need to consider before approaching such an issue? The two parts of the country have been together since after independence, I would say, I mean, it was one country, but a lot has happened. A lot has changed. People have settled in different parts of the country. People have raised families in different parts of the country. People have integrated in different ways. I want those who are pushing for independence to consider the long-term social effects that this will have on the country before doing this. Yes, independence sounds sweet because you may think that, well, if we're independent, we can run our affairs, we can manage our resources the way we want, we can develop the region the way we want, we can build relationships with the international community. But think about the long-term social effects of the independence of this part of the country on one, the country in general, and on these two parts, on, on these two regions of the country in particular. Personally, I wouldn't push for independence. But if that is what the majority wants, if there is an open conversation about it, go for it. If the majority does not want it, go for what the majority wants. Unfortunately, there is not that space, the, the, not such, no such space exists in Cameroon where you can have a conversation, a referendum-like conversation about what should and what should not be. At this point in time, when the situation have developed, has developed into full-blown conflict, you would think that the government would even consider holding a referendum saying, well, we want the English-speaking regions, the citizens of the English-speaking regions to decide their faith, but that has not happened. So I'm personally not for independent, but I don't think that I have so much to say about whether they should be independent or not. I'm looking at it from what are the benefits of independence and what are the demerits of uh, independence of Amazonia. And are you optimistic for a positive resolution in Cameroon in the short term? I am optimistic, but optimism without political will, which will not come from me, is really, you know, nothing. I can be hopeful for as long as I want to be. But until those who are, you know, those who have the power to make decisions that would change the faith of Cameroon do so, nothing would change. And when I say so, I mean the government is number one and the international community. And when I say the international community, I go back to the United Nations, to France and to Britain because they, these three bodies in the international milieu are, you know, they know the root cause of this problem and they can resolve it. Well, thank you, Peshalana. That's been really great to have you on today to talk about the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon and what we can expect to happen next and what are the potential um, solutions to this very complicated issue of a bicultural nation that's seen a lot of division in recent years. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been great to have you here. Thank you so much, Matt. That's all for this episode of The Peace Production. If you want to tell us what you think, you can send us an email, admin at theowp.org, or if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating. This episode has been brought to you by the Social Media Division of the Organization for World Peace. I'm Matt Adamson. See you next time.